uh, that passage for us today. So I'll hand over to Sarah. Hi everyone. Nice to uh, nice to see you. I'm actually going to sit down just because I can. Just get myself sorted. Thank you for reading that lengthy passage, uh, Kieran. Not the easiest, um, but yeah. Some, sometimes passages of the Old Testament are like that, aren't they? Um, We've been looking at the life of Abraham as we journey through Genesis. And in chapter 12, uh, we saw how Abraham responded to the call of God, where he left his family and life in Haran. And he saw how, and we saw how he trusted the Lord's promise, uh, which was that he would be a nation taken to a new land and given so many offspring that they would make this nation. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, Michael unpacked the next few chapters where Abraham underwent some very serious character testing. And I'd really commend that uh, talk to you if you haven't heard it. It was brilliant. Um, and in, in, in these chapters, we saw him fail his first test. Remember when he went to Egypt, he told the Egyptians that Sarah was his sister because he was scared for his own life. Despite the fact that God had actually promised that he would bring forth a great nation uh, from him and his offspring. Um, he allowed the fear to speak louder than uh, than the word of God, and so he took measures to um, protect himself and ended up getting himself in actually more hot water than what he would have if he just trusted God. Um, It's clear at that point in the story uh, that Abraham valued his riches and his possessions over his relationship with God and and ultimately with his family too. Then when we moved into chapter 14, we saw that he'd learned from his mistake and he passes the next test. Uh, of character as a senior man, Abraham had the right to choose the land when he and Lot split, but he gave Lot the choice. Um, again, it shows that he, well, now it shows that he's got his priorities right. He's trusting God uh, above the right to secure possession of land, and he values family. So Abraham shows that his um, trust is in God uh, when he takes this poor land without complaint, and then later on when he goes to rescue uh, Lot, uh, he declines any reward from the king of Sodom, which is actually a reward fit for winning a battle and quite normal for back then. And there's that famous passage that, um, again, Michael highlighted, he declares that he trusts the Lord God over anyone else and no man will make him rich and lay claim over him. So we see this wonderful um, progression of Abraham clearly getting his priorities in order um, realising that he can trust in the Lord, and we see that demonstrated. Uh, And it's after these character tests that we get this passage. This is where we find uh, chapter 15, when the Lord comes to Abraham in a vision uh, at the beginning of chapter 15, which is what we're looking at today. Now, this whole chapter, as Graham said, is a bit of a weird one, uh, and it's a bit gory at the end as well. Uh, Certainly very difficult for us, Uh, as modern readers, to understand what's going on. And at first, um, so we'll just start at the beginning and work our way through, and I'll try and explain it uh, as I go, and then we'll draw out from uh, at the end what what can we take away from it today as modern readers. So at first, God says to Abraham, don't be afraid. Why was he afraid? He would have been afraid because he expected retribution from the defeated kings. Remember, as I said um, in the chapter before, that the king of Sodom had offered him a great reward and Abraham had declined 
And then in this next verse, God says, don't be afraid. I am your protection and I am your very great reward. So uh, this is a thing we actually see throughout the Old Testament, God declaring to be the protector of his people and the warrior, which is completely unheard of in the ancient world when it came to the ancient gods. Remember that the people had to protect themselves against the gods. Um, But here God again shows how different he is by offering divine protection of of mere mortal man. Uh, And he says he will be his very great reward, which is far better than anything that any king could have offered Abraham. However, even though it's a pretty amazing thing that God's just told Abraham, he still has a question. It goes uh, a little bit like this. Sovereign Lord, in case it might have escaped your radar, you still haven't given me a child. Just a minor problem. But don't worry, I've got a solution. I'll fix that problem for you. I've, I've got a servant who will inherit everything of mine, uh, which actually, by the way, was a customary thing that was done if someone died uh, in the ancient world and didn't have any ch- children to inherit their wealth or estate. So again, we see Abraham taking matters into his own hands. Graciously, in verse 4, God clarifies He doesn't smack him around the head and tell him off. He simply confirms, no, I'm going to bring an heir from your own body. And then he takes him outside for this wonderful object lesson, which Rose expanded on in our prayer session uh, earlier this week. Uh, Look at the stars. This is how many children or how many descendants you will have. And then we get this verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham believes. He trusts the word of the Lord over anything else. And this is what makes Abraham remarkable. This is the key to Abraham living a big life. As I said in the first talk on Abraham, Abraham was just a regular guy, like all of us. He had failings, he had weaknesses, and he wasn't born special. He was a human. But he put his trust in God. He believed the Lord and he didn't just believe in the Lord. He believed the Lord and it's quite a difference there. Uh, He believed in the Lord for who he said he was and what he said he would do. Um, There's a lot of people who believe in the Lord, but who don't actually believe the word of the Lord. Now, Abraham had four marked encounters with God over his lifetime uh, that we know of. Encounters that are reasonably famous. Uh, although this one in chapter 15 is quite strange, so it's less famous. Uh, and the first, uh, is, the first call is when he gets the call to, chap- to go in chapter 12, which we looked at a few weeks ago. God says, go, leave everything, and just go. Abra- Abraham says, where? And God says, I'll tell you later. Abraham goes. In chapters 15 and 16, so this sermon and, and the next sermon we'll look at, uh, he has two encounters with God who says, Uh, He's going to give him so many offspring, he won't be able to count them. And a land uh, as well. And Abraham says, how? God says, I'll tell you later. So so Abraham keeps wandering and keeps preparing to be a father. And in chapter 22, we find the fourth encounter uh, with God, which is perhaps the most famous of all. And it's where God tells Abraham to kill his one and only son. Abraham says, why? God says, I'll show you later. And he goes up the hill. Every single time Abraham passes 
the trial. He believes, he faces unbelievable circumstances, uh, but he triumphs. Why? And how does he do this? He did it because he believed and he trusted in the Lord over everything else. Sure, he has questions, he has dialogue, he asks for signs, as we will see. But at the end of the day, he trusts in the Lord in what he says and in what he believes. Or, and, sorry, and he believes. And that's why he lived such a big life. This is why he masters circumstances. Circumstances don't master him. He so believed what God said that it allowed him to do what God asked of him, despite it not making human sense. And Tim Keller uses a great illustration of having um, Abraham having his anchor in God. Now, what do we know about anchors? They're pretty boring bits of equipment, heavy and clunky. If you go and look at a boat, you don't go and marvel over the anchor, usually, I don't think. There are far more interesting bits on boats, like speed throttles and fish finders and navigating plotters, if you're a fishing boat. But when you need an anchor... You really need an anchor. It's arguably, I think, one of the most important things on a boat, especially if you plan to stay out somewhere or to kind of park up and fish. And I remember being reminded about the importance of the anchor and setting anchor properly on our baby moon. I think I was about eight weeks off having Anya. <clears throat> Graham and I thought it would be a great idea to take mum and dad's boat out into the Hauraki Gulf. Clearly, I hadn't been that far pregnant before on a boat. I wouldn't re- recommend it. I discovered you nearly go into labour when you come back through rough seas and it's certainly not very easy to move around a small boat when you're that uh, pregnant. So don't do that for your baby moon, Becca. Um, but the other thing I, I, re- I learned was how, or was reminded of, how important it is to set your anchor properly. We found a reasonably quiet place to park the boat on a quiet bay, sheltered bay on Ponui Island. We made our dinner and then we sorted our cabin for the night. And uh, we were about to go uh, down into the cabin to sleep and we noticed that the rocks were a lot closer than when we'd been having dinner. And very quickly we realised we were actually drifting uh, reasonably fast and we needed to do something about it quickly. Um, We managed to move back out into the bay and set anchor again uh, and it didn't drift. But I do remember waking up many times in the night thinking, are we about to hit the rocks? (laughs) It turned out the anchor was faulty and when we got to Hamilton, it it was replaced. But regardless of what the cause, the anchor was not set in the solid bottom of the ocean. Setting anchor in anything else, like in weed or just in the water, uh, will mean the boat will drift. Now, this analogy uh, is what Tim Keller uses when he talks about Abraham having his anchor in the life Uh, sorry, his anchor for life in the bedrock or the sea bottom of the Lord. His anchor was in his faith in the Lord. His belief was in the Lord and that's what kept him from drifting off course. It kept him from believing in other things, kept him from believing uh, the fears to speak louder than what he heard God uh, say to him. In verse 6, Abraham uh, believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. His anchor of faith was in the Lord and his belief was in the Lord. And that's what steadied him to, in all of these encounters with God, to do what God had asked him. And the writer of Hebrews says, when talking about Abraham's faith in God and the certainty of the promises that God had made to him, we too can have that certainty 
Because if we have our hope or our anchor for life in the hope of God and in the promises of God, we can be as certain in the promises of God as Abraham was. Where is your anchor? Where is your hope? If our hope or our anchor lies in our jobs, our education, our family, our talents, our friends, our looks, if our anchor lies in any of those things, or our hope for life lies in any of those things, it's as useless as anchors dangling in the water. And we will come and flow and be moved around by the circumstances which constantly change. All these things, your talents, your friends, your education, all those things that I mentioned, all ebb and flow and change. You won't have those things forever. You won't have your friends forever. You won't have your family forever. You won't have your talents forever. You certainly won't have your looks forever. The only thing that is unchanging and solid and worth having your anchor on is the promise of God and the person of God. And that's what this passage demonstrates to us. And what happens next in this passage shows how Abraham knew with absolute certainty and beyond any doubt that he could have his hope or his anchor in God, that his promises were totally rock solid. If you're following along, we're at verse 7. He, God, says to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. And then Abraham has another human moment. I love this. He asks for a sign. How many times have we asked for a sign from God? How will I know what you're saying, God? How will I know where you're leading me? How will I know that I will gain possession of the land, is what Abraham says. And again, God doesn't tell him off or clip him around the ears or make him feel stupid for for asking this. Instead, he answers, but not as directly as he did in verse 4. He does do another object lesson of sorts. And let's admit it is a very weird object lesson, at least for us as human read as modern readers. He tells Abraham to go and get a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. The three animals all had to be three years old, so therefore fully grown and in their prime. There doesn't seem to be any other instruction given, but Abraham knows exactly what to do. He cuts them in half. Now pause, hang on. Cuts them in half, fetching a huge, stroppy three-year-old ram, uh, heifer, and goat is no easy task. My vet brain kicks in here, and I can tell you they're not easy. I'm sure Aaron and other people who have farming backgrounds will know it's not actually that easy just to go and fetch these animals. Then he has to kill them and cut them all in half. And I'm very, very certain he did not have a firearm or a bone-cutting saw to make the job any easier like we do today. Then he has to lay these pieces out on the ground. Lugging half a cow is not easy, given that he's in his 70s, 80s or 90s. Uh, Opposite each other, and then surely completely exhausted, he then has to wait for what God has to say while fighting off birds of prey as they come down to, to try and eat the meat. Now, in our minds, this is a really bizarre request of God and the thing... Uh, and a thing to do. But for Abraham and the people of that time, it actually wasn't. This is a contract in the making. What do we do when we want, what do we do when we want uh, something legally binding made with consequences if the terms are broken? We sign a piece of paper, don't we? A contract is made up and both parties sign. And when that paper is signed, 
a covenant is made. So, for example, when Graham and I got married, we said our vows, but then we signed a contract, a marriage certificate, which makes it legal and covenantal. And by signing this paper, we now were agreeing to the legal terms of marriage. And if we break those terms, there are now consequences. If any of us ever doubt that we got married, if one of us had an amnesia moment, we have this piece of paper to show, hey, look, this is what we signed up for. And in Abraham's day, they had an oral culture. They didn't have a written one. They didn't yet have pens and paper. So in an important agreement where they had to give someone their word and effectively sign a covenant, they killed some animals, lay the pieces on the ground opposite each other, and then the two parties would walk between uh, those pieces in the aisle created. Now, it was probably a more effective way of signing than a piece of paper uh, because it's a really vivid description or depiction of what would happen if either party broke their part of the covenantal commitment. As they walked down the aisle between the pieces, they would enact out the consequences of what would happen if they were unfaithful to the oath. If I am unfaithful to you in this covenant, I will die. My body will be broken in two, blood spilled out on the ground like these animals. If you break covenant, you will die. Your body will be broken in two. Your blood will be spilled out on the ground like these animals. So the ramifications of breaking covenant were very front and central when a covenant is signed like this, which is obviously more confronting than signing a piece of paper as we do today. And we see this in other parts of the Old Testament. In Jeremiah, King Zedekiah made a covenant with all the people of Jerusalem to proclaim freedom for the slaves. But after the officials and people entered into that covenant and agreed, they later changed their mind and enslaved the people again. And God declares to them, the people in chapter 34, those who have violated my covenant and who have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will cut like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. I will deliver them into the hands of their enemies who want to kill them. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds. So when God told Abraham to bring him the animals, Abraham knew this wasn't a random request. But God was setting up a covenantal ratification ceremony. God was going to make a covenant with him and that he was going to keep his promise to Abraham. And this was how Abraham would know God would keep his word. But it didn't actually go as Abraham expected. We read that a thick, dreadful darkness came over him. It was heavy, oppressive, and he kind of goes into this sort of trance. And out of the darkness, Abraham hears the voice of God prophesying what's going to happen to his descendants in the years to come, which we know, of course, was the slavery of the Israelites in Egypt. And after 400 years, God would bring them out and provide them with great possessions, just like he did with Abraham. Abraham, though, would never get to see this land. He would die at a good old age. And, you know, the only land Abraham ever owned for himself was the plot of land where he and Sarah were buried. But God would deliver the land into the hands of his descendants. And this is how Abraham could be so certain of this promise. In the midst of this darkness, as the sun sets, a fire appears. Now the words here are 
hard to translate accurately. So uh, in my Bible, it said smoking fire pot. Uh, I think when Kieran read it, it was a, a brazier. Um, but a smoking fire pot and, and blazing torch are what translators and theologians have best guessed to depict what exactly the thing looked like. But what we, what we do, so we don't know exactly what it looked like, but what we do know for certain is that the words used in Hebrew here to describe whatever that thing was are the same words used to describe the pillars of fire and the smoke that appeared in the sky, which guided the people through the wilderness, and also used to describe the holy fire at the top of Mount Sinai. So the fire pot and torch, whatever it looked like, uh, was the presence of God. And it passes between the pieces. So God is saying to Abraham, you can be so certain in my promise that I have made to you that you will have these descendants and you will have this land and that I will bless you. But if I don't keep my word, I will face the consequences. I will become like these animals. I will die. My body will be broken in two. My blood poured out. But here's the kicker. Here's the amazing part. God knew and Abraham knew that Abraham would not be able to keep his end of the bargain. So God didn't ask Abraham to walk between the pieces. God went down that aisle for both of them. This is absolutely stunning. When a king would make this sort of oath or covenant with a vessel or, 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 a, uh, or a vassal with a weaker party or a servant nation that he ruled, usually along the lines of, hey, you, you keep your allegiance with me, you obey me and stay loyal to me and pay your taxes and I'll look after you as, your, as my subjects and defend you against you know, attackers, they would sign the oath by this process. But they wouldn't always go through. The servant or weaker party always went through and sometimes the ruling king went through um, with them. But never the ruling king on his own. That was completely unheard of. But God, as he always does, turns things on, on their head. He goes through for both Abraham and himself and all of Abraham's descendants. And going through, God himself is saying, I will take upon myself the curse of the covenant for both of us. May I be cut off from my life and my body broken if I break covenant, but may I be cut off from life and my body broken if you break covenant. I will bless you and keep my word, even if that means I have to die. And of course, we all know he did. We were never able to make that covenant. And in, in Mark's gospel, we read about the dreadful darkness coming down on Jesus as he hung on the cross, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God himself came as Jesus to die, his body broken, his blood poured out, taking the full brunt Recording of the consequences. Stopped. Recording in progress. I'm not sure what that was. <clears throat> God himself came as Jesus to die, his body broken, his blood poured out, taking on the full brunt of the consequences of a broken covenant so that we would be blessed and still live in the promise, so that we would live as his children here and now and so that we will enter into the promised land, his kingdom in the life to come. We deserve to be killed, broken into, blood spilled out on the ground. None of us live in the way that God calls us to. 
None of us can honour the contract. The words of Isaiah 53 are so poignant. They, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, our failure to keep covenant, our failure to put our hope in him, our failure to walk in obedience to him. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was led like a lamb to slaughter, cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. And this is the gospel. I love this chapter 15 because in Genesis because it illustrates the gospel and points to Jesus in a way that no other passage in the Old Testament does. It points to the certainty and the solidness of God's word, his promises. And what's more, he did it while we were still sinners. He did this knowing that many would not recognize him and turn to him. Don't be like those people. Don't have your anchor for life or your hope in anything other than God's love and in his promises. Do you know how you can be certain of his love and certain of his promise? Look at Jesus. Look at the broken body of Jesus and know that God always keeps his word. We are the ones who put him there. It was our sin, not his. So what do we take away for ourselves today? What if... If, God, if what God's displaying in this passage doesn't move you, then I'm not sure what will. I'm not saying how I've spoken about it will move you, but what God is saying in here, if it doesn't move you, nothing will. So spend some time again this week in this passage, asking God to bring it deeper alive to you. I've sat in this passage for hours and I feel like it was such a privilege. It touched my soul and I feel a whole new level of trust in God's promises and his love because of it. And you can have this too. So spend some time in the word of God and also spend some time in the, in the accounts of Jesus on the cross. Because that uh, obviously is the parallel. And this will bring the truth and power of God's promise alive to you or more alive to you. So that's the first. Secondly, think about where your anchors of hope are. God said he has come so that we can have life abundantly and he is the only place where we can find our security, our reason for living and our hope. Anything else and we are like boats with anchors dangling in the water. Many of us struggle with things in life because we don't fully trust God. When we don't fully trust his wisdom, we experience worry. When we don't fully trust his grace and love, we end up hating ourselves. When we don't trust his justice, we become bitter and angry. We disobey because we think that we will miss out on life if we only live the way God tells us. We don't trust that when God says he will bring it to us in all fullness, it will indeed be full in the way that nothing else can bring us fullness and joy. If you struggle with any of this, these things, as we all do, perhaps our anchor or your anchor is in something else. You don't fully trust God to the deepest level of your heart. We're all guilty of this and we have to all keep checking where our anchor for life is. Abraham's anchor was in the love of God and he had a solid belief in who God was. And that's what enabled him to live the big life. And that's what enables us to live 
life the way God wants us to as well. He saw that covenant of grace and he believed. And we too can see the covenant of grace in the person of Jesus. But remember, he asked questions, he had unbelief, and he voiced them. And that's another place to start. Take your unbelief in his promises to him. Talk to him about it. Like the man who came to Jesus asking him to heal his daughter, and then he said, help me with my unbelief, Lord. He won't clobber you. He will answer you in the way you best need to hear, like he did with Abraham. Let's just take a moment now in prayerful reflection. So just close your eyes wherever you are. Where is your anchor? Is it firmly embedded in the love and promise of God or is it in something or someone else? Don't feel condemned, but feel convicted and speak to God about it and about your lack of faith. Remember, he won't tell you off. Now let's take a few moments to reflect on what Jesus did and how that demonstrates the certainty of God's covenant of grace with us. Dad, can you let Frankie out? Dad, can you just let Frankie out? She's making a real... Let's pray. Thank you that Abraham could stand firm in the knowledge of who you were and in the certainty of your promises as he saw you make covenant. Thank you that we too, God, can stand firm in the knowledge of who you are and the certainty of your promises when we look at what Jesus did on the cross. Thank you, Father, that you are our shield and our exceedingly great reward. Thank you that you are always faithful to the point of death and beyond. To the point of taking on the curse that was meant for us upon yourself. Father, I ask that you'd help us to live a life of true flourishing as you intend, without worry and anxiety, without bitterness and resentment, by having our anchors in your love and in your hope. Your gospel is true hope. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you continue to make this truth more vivid for us this week. I mean, um,